Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you for tuning into the CapEx podcast. I'm Alice Denby, Deputy Editor of CapEx. What made you choose this episode? Was it something you saw on social media, a recommendation from a friend, or a prompt from an algorithm? Whether you noticed it or not, something persuaded you to press play on this rather than one of the millions of other podcasts out there. We all make thousands of choices like this every day, but how freely do we really make them? In their new book, Free Your Mind, The New World of Manipulation and How to Avoid It, Journalist Laura Dodsworth and behavioural scientist Patrick Fagan argue that in a world saturated with information, there's a war on our minds as the media, advertisers, politicians and big tech vie to influence our decisions. They investigate the psychological techniques from fear to flattery that are used constantly to manipulate us and offer advice on how to recognise and resist them. We sat down for a fascinating conversation that ranged from the excesses of COVID lockdowns to the joy of rediscovering your masculinity while getting naked in a forest. I hope you'll enjoy it, but I would caution to listen, in the spirit of the book, sceptically. So Patrick and Laura, welcome to the CapEx podcast. And we're here to discuss your book, Free Your Mind, The New World of Manipulation and How to Resist It, which is out this week in all good bookshops and maybe some bad ones, who knows. So I want to talk a bit about the conception of the book. Patrick, you're a behavioural scientist and Laura, you're a writer and a photographer. What inspired the two of you to come together to create this book? Well, I already was kind of cooking the idea kind of up uh, in my mind for a while because I'd noticed that there were certain things in life that kind of conspire to keep you um, dumbed down, I think, or asleep. So too much television, too much junk food, too much alcohol, these kind of things. Uh, lesson rationality, I think. So I had this idea for a book called Don't Be Stupid about how to kind of enlighten yourself. And then 2015, 2016, I started to see a lot of manipulation in the news around certain political events. Obviously, that went into overdrive with uh, COVID. Yeah, I I had this idea of, uh, well, let's help people bring some rationality back and start making their own rational choices. And I came across Patrick because he wrote an article about masks quite early in 2020 at a time that I also wrote an article about masks. I liked his article. It was quite bold. It was quite polemic. Not everybody listening will like the sound of this, but it was masks make you stupid. Look, the writer's not always responsible for the headline. We know that. You have to bring the publication. <laughs> Were you? Oh, okay. Hey, I just gave you an out there and you've, okay, you've hung yourself. Um, but it was a very well-referenced article. 
And I was doing something that was a bit more creative, but getting to the same sort of point of view that masks were effectively like um, the vestiture of the faithful because they weren't evidence-based. Well, I interviewed him for my book, State of Fear. This whole time was for me a huge epiphany because whatever you think about the severity and the danger of COVID-19, what we witnessed in, in real time for ourselves was the mass evocation of compliance and docility through a natural fear of the risk of a pandemic, but also a government operation of propaganda, behavioral science and fear mongering. I've been thinking about what it means to be a human, what the human brain is about and psychology ever since. I think I'm in a perpetual existential crisis about it. And so I said to Patrick, I've got an idea for a book called Unwash Your Brain, where we teach people not to be manipulated. He'd had this similar idea. So this has been quite a long time in the coming because it was actually in that lockdown where you could sit outside at a cafe. Remember when hospitality reopened, but only outdoors and it was too cold. And there we were sitting out there under our blankets, plotting this new book. So we've come at it from quite similar points of view about wanting to help people to have, this is a book we hope will do what it says on the tin. We want people's minds to be free. During COVID, your freedom to do a lot of things was taken away. Your freedom to worship, to work, to have relationships at the birth of your baby, to be at a funeral. But the freedom of your mind should always be yours if you want it. It's very much down to the individual, we think, to take it back. I think it's really interesting. I mean, you wrote for CapEx a fair bit about COVID, sort of speaking out against masks and so on. And the backlash was incredible to people who seem to not be going along with lockdown and with the kind of orthodoxy. And one of the interesting things that we're noticing now, I think, is say the story of the lab leak, which was so dismissed at the time as a mad conspiracy theory. There's now actually a lot more evidence for it. I wonder if people are kind of reassessing post-COVID, the extent to which they were manipulated, or if you still think, I mean, are you expecting a similar kind of backlash with this book as we experienced during COVID? No, I'm not expecting the same backlash to this book, but I think there will be some. I think that some people want to pigeonhole it as a self-help book. We're just the genre-defying sorts. We don't want to think of it sitting in a box, but they might not like that a self-help book has got a little bit of a hint of the polemic about it. We've wanted it to be quite ideologically neutral, but you'll get a little bit of a sense of our politics as you go through. We think that's okay because we don't want you to think the same as us. We really do just want to teach people to be psychologically resilient. So if you get a sense of what our politics of views are, it doesn't matter. We think by the time you read this book, you're perfectly capable of brushing it off. The backlash to a state of fear was harder because to tell people that they have been manipulated and they've been frightened beyond the actual severity of the situation is really hard for people to hear. The Wuhan lab leak is such a great example, though, of what we're talking about, of what we want people to be resilient to. It's literally just a couple of years when public health experts and the media and fact checkers told people it was a conspiracy theory that COVID escaped from a lab. Now, I never really had any idea and I never pretended to, but I would have thought it made perfect common sense that it could have escaped from a lab given the circumstantial evidence, you know, there's some breadcrumbs around. But what we now know from the release of unredacted emails is that people like Fauci and Jeremy Farrar, who's on SAGE and headed up Wellcome Trust, effectively conspired to um, prevent people from discussing the lab leak theory because they didn't want to create mistrust in science or to damage international relations with China. As far as they were concerned, they were acting in people's best interests. 
But what that really reveals is a total lack of trust in people, that they can be exposed to the information as it stands, can be trusted to behave responsibly and make up their own minds. And I think that this is a very pervading theme in politics and public health and knowledge in behavioural science now that people aren't to be trusted. You know, we have quite a reductive and depressing view of the human mind, that people are like little social units to be shuffled around a board. And actually, well, we think people's brains are brilliant and they should be allowed whatever information they want and make up their mind what to do with it. I agree, uh, of course. And I'm not sure if there's an awareness of the manipulation that was used. I think maybe what we might be seeing is cognitive dissonance, these mm-hmm. um, defense mechanisms like denial or minimization, just not thinking about it at all or rationalizing it. You know, it made sense at the time with the information we had, that kind of thing. What do you think? Do you see this? change in attitude? I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance. For instance, there are a few scientists on SPY-B, some of the prominent ones who published a paper in British Medical Journal a couple of months ago saying using fear to control people in a pandemic would be terrible. That wasn't us. It was the government. Yet that contradicts the minutes from their own meeting. You can see a, a paper trail quite clearly of what they recommended, which would have been in response to a question posed by the government. You know, equally just last week, David Halpern, the head of the Nudge Unit, said that he thinks that using fear is justified if people are wrongly calibrated. Presumably means if you didn't have a good understanding of the risk. The fact is that going back to February 2020, before lockdown, there were World Health Organization documents that explained that the risk was highly stratified according to age and your clinical condition. And actually, I think people were doing a very good job of assessing their own risk. We know from Google Mobility data that people started sheltering. My mum is elderly and has terminal lung conditions, and she sheltered hard, really early. I took a trip on the motorway right up until the last minute to complete a job I had to do and didn't go into the service station. You know, people understood how to manage their own lives. But there's an idea that if you were not correctly calibrated, i.e. you didn't do what you were told, it was okay to scare you like a child with a bedtime story into behaving better. Let's talk about some of the specific techniques that were used during COVID to manipulate people. You go through these quite recognised sort of psychological techniques in the book, but I think for listeners who have maybe haven't read your previous work, let's talk about some of the ways that fear and manipulation were used. Well, one of the first things I noticed was the framing of statistics. Um, so in the news, they would say the absolute number of people who died with COVID every day. And of course, there's the with not of argument, but also they were framing the numbers in the way to make it as scary as possible. And you can say that maybe they felt like or did have a noble reason for that, but it still was a manipulation to scare people. So framing is where you take a positive and make it look like a negative or vice versa. Um, So just imagine if instead the statistics were every day, what percentage of people who caught COVID survived? And it would be 90 whatever percent. And just uh, they could have a bar chart from zero to 100% and you just see it's at nearly 100% every day, that wouldn't be quite so scary. So there seemed to be a deliberate framing of statistics. Then there, of course, was all the fear messaging, which probably Laura's best place to talk about that. But there was a lot of what's called nudging. What is it? A kind of philosophy which believes that people are what's called cognitive misers. So we all have very limited attention spans for paying attention to the world, which is true. And so we rely on shortcuts to navigate all of this complexity and choice. So if you see two restaurants, you're in a rush, you can't find any others. One of them's completely empty and one of them's really busy. Which one are you going to? Probably the busy one. Most people say that because it's popular, so it must be good. 
And so a lot of this messaging used these nudge techniques. For example, the text that went out for the COVID vaccine, again, not saying anything either way for the vaccine, but the text, uh, you're at the top of the queue and are a priority for getting a free NHS vaccine. And there's at least six nudges in there. So they said there's a queue, which is social proof. They said you're at the top of the queue, uh, which is an ego nudge, makes you feel special. They have used scarcity by saying you're a priority. Uh, and there's a few others in there as well. So that's just one example. But you can see in all of their messaging, really, they laid these nudges in. What do you think was the most kind of egregious excess during the pandemic? Well, the thing that is close to my heart is this excessive use of fear. I think it is, you know, a real tragedy that people are left with mental and physical health problems as a result of being frightened. So there's the identification of COVID anxiety syndrome. There are still people now who have OCDs and obsessive hygiene measures and agoraphobia, etc., because they were frightened excessively. And the problem with um, campaigns such as Look Him in the Eyes was they tried to responsibilize and democratize the risk. So if somebody died, it was simply your fault for not following the rules. That takes away all of the attention from the government. It's not their fault for having built massive hospitals, which are like cities and breeding grounds for airborne infections. It's not their fault for not having had enough PPE. It puts all of the responsibility onto you, the citizen. By an extension of that, when that was conveyed upon children, that was even worse. So granny killer. We know that the most vulnerable groups are the elderly. To COVID. So lots of grandparents will have died. And it's outrageous to suggest it was ever a grandchild's fault. It's simply because their grandparents were elderly and clinically vulnerable. So to put the responsibility onto children was unforgivable. David Halpin, the head of the Nudge Unit, who was on Spy B and Sage, also said recently that the Look Him in the Eyes campaign is acceptable if what you're trying to do is cut through to the super spreaders. But the problem with all of these campaigns is you can't cut through just to the super spreaders. What you're doing is putting a campaign onto the whole nation. So everybody sees it and everybody's affected. I don't think that all of that work really operated within tight ethical guidelines. I can't remember because I think like a lot of people, I've got this kind of amnesia about the pandemic. I think it's something that people just choose not to think about. But I can't remember if that was something that was kind of put about by the government or if that was just something that was more... Matt Hancock said it. Air. He said that He phrase. said, don't kill granny. And it was an official campaign in one local authority. I um, can't remember which one off the top of my head. I apologise. I don't want to say the wrong city and annoy mm. people. But it was part of an official campaign and Matt Hancock said it in broadcast and in print. Also, as an interesting aside, uh, there's a lot of research showing that people's perception of time was impacted mm. by the pandemic. Mine still is. Yeah. <laughs> it just, uh, for me, it's kind of a complete blur, kind of yeah. a nasty dream in a way. And that's probably because people weren't experiencing things. So we don't actually, as human beings, we don't judge time and our life by calendars and days. It's by events. So birthdays, holidays, nights out, festivals. Mm. These are the things which we remember because they're meaningful. And so when these are taken away, time really just becomes this formless soup. And there's probably a role for screens in there as well, because screens produce a kind of shallow, superficial thinking style where you're not really memorizing stuff long-term. Being indoors, no experiences, lots of screens, that had a big psychological <laughs> impact. But it was even worse than that, actually. I mean, that's all really interesting, what you're saying. Uh, also, Prep brought out their Christmas turkey sandwich in the summer. Remember, Who could yeah. forget that? Sorry, we talked about, we, we're <laughs> nutters. We talked about this kind of thing all the time on WhatsApp. But also, if you remember, because things um, like sporting events mm. didn't happen in the year they should, yeah. they were given the name of the preceding year yes. in the year they happened. 
So this kind of thing obviously plays with your, <laughs> with yeah. your um, sense of time quite a lot. I wonder if you draw a moral distinction between using these kind of psychological techniques to promote compliance with the lockdowns, which I think I would certainly agree listeners make up their own mind. I think it's fairly beyond dispute that they've had bad effects, seriously harmful consequences, especially for children. Is there a difference between that and urging people to get vaccinated, which did ultimately save a lot of lives and bring about an end to the pandemic? The vaccination campaign, I think the jury is going to have to still be out on this because the thing is, we've never used such a panoply of incentives and coercions before. So vaccine passports, to my mind, crossed an ethical line. I don't, I personally don't believe you should ever have to demonstrate your medical status to access civic and economic life. For me, that's a no. I would never have carried a vaccine passport to travel, to go into a supermarket or a cinema, because I think it's fundamentally wrong, that kind of papers please society about your health. We also did things like have petting zoos for children to get vaccinated. This is a little beyond having a sticker. We had raffles. We have incentivized prizes, um, vouchers, free taxis to and from vaccination centers. Actually, free taxis is the thing I take the least issue with because that's just about improving convenience. We also experienced in real time in our lives what it's like to see a group of people scapegoated. So if you remember the headlines, things like it's time to punish Britain's unvaccinated. Um, there were messages about how the unvaccinated didn't deserve NHS care or they should die. You know, we really turned on people who chose not to have a medical intervention for a variety of reasons, which breaches informed consent and it risks a very negative spillover effect in society. So I don't think it was right to do all that. I suspect we will see it play out in vaccine confidence in years to come in terms of take up for other vaccine programs. Now, there are other vaccine programs that do actually prevent transmission. The COVID-19 vaccine didn't. And so the consequences may play out quite negatively. But the problem was that in the pandemic, those nudgers who came up with all of these brand new ways to encourage vaccination were thinking about a net shift at the time. And I don't think they were really focused on the long-term effects of what they were doing. They wanted to see a net shift upwards in vaccination then. We're all different. We may have actually negatively impacted confidence in public health authorities in ethnic minorities, which were always less likely to be vaccinated. We don't know what the consequences are going to be. It's still early to say. I'm glad that you said all of the controversial stuff on the, on the <laughs> vaccine, so I don't have to, but almost controversial stuff. Obviously, I agree. There is a psychological principle called reactance. Uh, so if you think, if you tell a teenager they're not allowed to smoke, what are they going to do? Go up and smoke, probably. So if you take away people's autonomy, they'll try and assert that in other ways. And so people were forced uh, to take the vaccine. Some people didn't want to take it. And now they may be asserting their autonomy in other ways. We're seeing less uh, routine immunization and predictions of measles outbreaks and these kind of things. One thing I will say is I do feel there are things that you can use these techniques for. So I've currently working on a project for suicide prevention, using targeted nudges on Facebook for suicide prevention. I think something like that is very hard to argue that there's anything wrong with that. I don't really think nudges are neutral, which is what we're told, but I don't disagree that there should be nudging or behavioral science in society. Where I take issue is when governments do it, because they don't actually have a democratic mandate to do it. There's been no consultation on governments using subliminal covert techniques on us. So I think that we should get to vote on this. You know, you have behavioural science in central government, local government, government agencies, supranational bodies. There's no escape from it. And it changes our relationship with the government, which should be transactional. We pay taxes, they provide services. That's not how it is when they're nudging us. 
I think we both agree that charities and businesses should be able to use standard manipulation techniques for for different ends, as they always have. Yeah, I just think people should be aware of them. We just want people to be aware because we've never lived with as much manipulation as we're exposed to now. There are very contested figures about this, but one recent figure suggests that you get the equivalent of 174 newspapers worth of information every day. Mm. We're bombarded. There's a blitzkrieg of ads, information, nudges and propaganda. And it's about knowing how to sift through it and work out what's right for yourself. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I think that's the interesting dilemma in your book. So zooming out from COVID, I mean, you paint this picture of a war on your mind that we're surrounded by these forces trying to manipulate us. But I think what we've been getting into is that some nudges are worse than others. How worried should we really be about this? Quite worried. <laughs> I mean, especially with technological changes that are coming. Mm. The Vision Pro, Apple Vision Pro headset, people will be immersed in this kind of symbolic world 24-7 in many cases, I'm sure. Data analytics, be able to read people's minds and potentially change them at the source. Uh, There was a study showing if you apply magnets to certain parts of the cranium, you can change people's political and religious beliefs. Uh, It's just one study. Okay. I mean, we'll see if it's replicated, but why not? I mean, if you're attaching a Neuralink to your brain, it's probably got quite big potential to influence you. Worried in that sense. On the other hand, manipulation is very old. I mean, language, all language, all communication is a form of manipulation. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. We're always kind of bombarded with every single interaction. Someone's trying to influence you in some way. Even this conversation, I'm trying to convince people of a certain idea. Buy Um, the book. Yes. (laughs) Basically. Um, Yeah, look, absolutely. Manipulation is persuasion, which is language. And it's as old as human beings. It's as old as democracy. It's as old as time, isn't it? But I think there are some uniquely current dangers. First of all, there's a balance that has to be redressed. There are literally thousands of books that teach the dark arts of persuasion. Mm. Go on Amazon. There are thousands of books teaching you basically how to brainwash, advertise, manipulate, use PR. And now look for the books that teach you how to counter them. There's one. 
called Free Your Mind. It's the new one. And so first of all, that's a balance that needs to be redressed because people who want to understand the attempts to manipulate should be given the tools to do so. So in the book, we set out mechanistic principles for doing that and then also psychological principles that will make you more resilient. We also explain what nudges and propaganda looks like because once you know how to spot the tactics, you don't unsee them. But Patrick talked about AI. There's a lot of moral panic about AI at the moment. People talking about it in terms of mass extinction threats. I would say that in itself is a type of nudge. When you hear about something being on the same scale as nukes, when it hasn't yet acquired sentience, you have to wonder what the fear is about. I've got an article coming out about that soon. The funny thing is, when all these tech leaders and governments are saying, we need to pause, we need to regulate, it's like nuclear weapons. What they're not talking about is algorithmic nudging, which is something academics have been warning about for years. Clearly, the use of AI to persuade, manipulate and nudge people poses very serious risks to do with consent, manipulation and privacy. So the online environment is vast. And yet the ability to personalize to you will be completely unique. Think about that being done at scale for everybody. There are some particularly current dangers alongside the fact that governments all around the world are using behavioral science. They're using increasingly sophisticated techniques. You know, we have this quaint old fashioned idea of psychology being about diagnosing and fixing people, but it's just not correct to think of it that way. A lot of psychologists are now trying to predict and manipulate your behavior to make you buy things and do things. I think that's really interesting. One of the sort of really interesting nuggets I found in your book, which is kind of almost funny, There's an SEO expert you spoke to said that it could be that Boris Johnson's bizarre anecdote, you guys remember this about painting a wine box to look like a bus, that this could have in fact been an incredibly clever way of getting headlines about the Brexit bus further down on the Google rankings, which I mean, I'd love to think that Boris Johnson was that sophisticated. Are people really doing this stuff deliberately? Or as you say, is this kind of a normal part of human interaction? We're all trying to persuade each other all the time. I can assure you that in the world of online reputation management, they all think that Boris has got very clever people advising him. You see, because he has this kind of zany, bombastic, eccentric personalities, he's exactly the kind of person to get away with this. At the time of the cheese and wine parties mm. at Downing Street, if you'd searched for Boris Johnson and cheese, you would have got news stories all about these disgraceful rule-breaking parties. If you had searched just a short while later for Boris Johnson and cheese, you'd have got completely different articles about Boris Johnson saying people must go back to work in the office. It's time to get out of your home and go back to work. You know, that was the government messaging at the time at the end of the pandemic. Because after all, when he's at home, he's so distracted by the cheese in the fridge. I mean, this is so random. This is so bizarre. Why would he do that? So that expert I spoke to works in this field of online digital PR. And says so that's the talk. That's what they're all saying is happening. And it's the same with the bus. You know, instead of talking about the Brexit bus, you find some random story about Boris Johnson painting buses. So the thing about the online world, a form of manipulation that can occur is not just the algorithms itself, which gain everything. They are the secret online editors that they don't want you to know about. It's that there are certain people who know how to game the system. Which is why when you're using a search engine, don't just stick to the first page results. Look beyond that. Maybe switch search engines, try different search engines in combination with each other. That first result that's there may even have been placed there deliberately by the search engine in order to help promote particular health advice or public advice, just like they admitted they did during COVID. Now, if you go to DuckDuckGo because you think, oh, this is great, DuckDuckGo is the is the rule-making privacy renegade of the search engine world, even they have said that they won't put Russian propaganda near the top because of the war in Ukraine. 
Now, you may, for your very own reasons, want to find Russian propaganda, but you won't find it on .go. Mm -hmm. So you just need to understand that there are lots of different ways that the search results are geared up to game you. I want to get onto the kind of the rules to avoid manipulation. So as well as kind of an analysis, your book's also, as you've explained, a kind of field guide to how to avoid this. I want to get onto that stuff. But first, I want to talk about some of the kind of more sort of we say investigative research you guys did. So, I mean, there's a lot, you guys undertook a lot of fascinating experiments, getting involved with cults and dating experts. And there's a great bit in the book, Patrick, where you talk about getting naked on this men's uh, yeah. heroes. It's a masculinity retreat. Uh, and actually, I don't have anything bad to say about it, even though it used basically every brainwashing principle in the book, but it did it for good, really. And they haven't followed up with me or asked for more money. So I, I don't think it's, um, I didn't have to pay to go in the first place, but I don't think there's anything uh, bad to say about it. It was kind of helping men to find their purpose, their inner wild man, as they put it, just uh, that kind of masculine strength. And it was quite intense. I only had nuts and fruit to eat the whole weekend. Uh, they would wake us up at 6am to go and have a shower, cold shower outdoors. It was November. There was more nakedness than I expected. At one point, we were all sitting in a circle uh, naked and talking about our sexual insecurities, but only if you were holding the wooden phallus. That was your, that was your cue to speak. So it's quite intense, but it was uh, the whole point is to kind of break you down, kind of emotionally overwhelm you, make you tired and hungry, and then you can kind of reshape what's there in the ashes. Um, so in some ways, these techniques can be used for good. I mean, I think it sounds like you found it quite a fulfilling experience. Yeah, absolutely. These kind of rites of passage, these rituals stretch back forever, really, throughout human history. And they're kind of lacking today. I mean, that's the argument that these people make at this retreat. They can be good for you. I mean, that's what Christmas is, for example. It's this... Um, apparently developed off the back of Saturnalia, which was a Roman festival where everyone would get drunk and masters would become the servants and the servants would become the masters and everyone would wear masks and things. It's all about being upside down and disintegrating things. Um, a little bit like that now with Christmas office parties where people get drunk and everything. These rituals, these rites of passage are actually really important. Um, I think Nietzsche said, a snake that doesn't shed its skin will die. And so we all have to go through these, these rituals, I think. But then something to point out from that, I laugh a lot about Patrick's experience. I mean, his was really cool. Let me tell you, as a woman, if you're looking for some kind of cool cult to join, there's nothing like the one Patrick did. <laughs> I, I booked myself into a convent for a silent retreat. I wasn't naked carrying phalluses around words like Patrick. The, the technique there is disrupt, then reframe. Mm -hmm. I mean, these sorts of courses often use literally the enhanced interrogation techniques that states use against each other. But there's a simple way that you can protect yourself from it, which is the thing that every alcoholic or drug addict in recovery knows, which is halt, hunger, anxiety, loneliness, tiredness. You can do a lot to protect yourself from manipulation if you watch out for those downbeats. So make sure you're not hungry. I mean, Patrick was literally starved, naked, cold, uncomfortable and emotionally berated. All because he paid for it and yeah. built him up and he's happy with it. And so is your wife, isn't she? She thinks she came out of it a better man. But so that's another thing. You know, you can choose to be inducted. You can choose your master. You can choose your, your manipulator for whatever reasons. You know, when you go to church, you choose some form of manipulation. If you go to Glastonbury, you're choosing to be in a situation where you'll be more susceptible to messaging as well. But you can protect yourself by looking after yourself physically, emotionally and psychologically too. Just as everybody that goes to AA knows about, like I say, using HALT. 
Another thing you did, Patrick, is you posed as a kind of gender questioning person on a Reddit forum with some slightly surprising consequences. Just the caveat that, that, you know, um, people can feel that they're born in the wrong body from birth and so on. It's not to belittle them and everyone's free to make uh, whatever choices they want in life. But there does seem to be a trend towards it. I mean, there's more than ever. There's even a study showing that connecting it to internet use and so on. So I kind of wanted to investigate that. Rapid onset gender dysphoria by Dr. Lisa Lippman. Just going to insert the reference there. It was quite surprising in that uh, somebody contacted me the next day on my personal email address, which I guess they found from my website. Even though I'd been very kind of anonymous or pseudonymous, they'd taken the picture of myself, which I'd feminized using an app. I mean, I believe they did this, I don't know. And then ran it through a website called Pim Eyes, where if you upload a photo, it finds every other instance of that person through facial recognition on the internet, and then use that to email me, which was quite shocking. I feel like sort of in the kind of spirit of like healthy skepticism that the book encourages, I slightly wanted to challenge you on on the way you wrote about that thing, because you said that after this happened to you, you deleted the profile um, because you were worried about being outed. You felt that like mud sticks and that the idea that people would believe this about you would be humiliating for you. So it just felt to me that you came into that experiment with some preconceptions and biases. And I guess maybe this is to the point that none of us are free of this. We agree. Nobody is bias-free, ideologically neutral, politically neutral. It's impossible. It's why we decided to climb off the fence a little bit at times in the book, because, you know, who are we kidding? We can't pretend we're completely ideologically neutral. I will say, though, at the time, you know, because we've obviously been in close contact throughout the research and the writing, but Patrick was really shocked when it happened because mm. he thinks he's there doing this covert little anonymous experiment for our book. But then somebody arrives in his personal email trying mm. to blackmail him. And it was kind of a shocking experience because he thought not only might he be outed as trans, which he's actually not, so he would have been being accused of something he's not. He would have been accused of doing something coerce as well. And there was this kind of like unpleasant feeling to do with somebody trying to make you feel bad about it and use it against you. I guess this is the kind of quandary at the whole centre of the book is that you're asking people to be sceptical and to question everything, but then you're also, in a sense, asking them to trust you. How can a reader kind of resolve these two things? We think people should be sceptical always. It's why we've taken the approach with the book that we have got hundreds of references in it. I think it will be clear when people read what the distinction is between our theorizing and what we can back up as well with evidence, research. You know, we interviewed experts in lots of different fields. So you read the quotes and the conversations with them. And then we back up with latest research or also references to classic literature. We drew very much on the thinkers and writers from that World War period. It's a very heavily referenced book so that we can back up what we're saying with evidence. Absolutely. We are biased. Don't trust us, I guess, completely. (laughs) I mean, we have our own biases and agendas and everyone does. Yeah, everyone does. So that's one of the chapters was choose your illusion is the fact that you can't really not be biased, but you can choose what you're biased by. So you can follow angry people on Twitter or you can follow people who show you the best way to exercise and make money. So everyone's biased. Yeah. Something that we've both experienced through writing the book is being a lot more open-minded to new ideas and other people, we both feel quite a lot more, well, more humility about the extent of our knowledge and the fact that, you know, everybody really wants to advance understanding between each other. 
tribalism, groupthink, social conformity, which of course runs through the heart of this book. You can't write about nudging and manipulation and behavioral science without talking about social conformity, and it serves good evolutionary purposes. But it's weaponized against us, and we shouldn't allow ourselves to be siloed into tribes. We both deliberately embark on experiences now and reading, which is to challenge ourselves and to try to be more open-minded. One of my favorite quotes in the book is Charlie Munger, the businessman. And he said that the human brain is like the human egg. So when a sperm gets into the human egg, it's fertilized. No other sperm ever gets in again. And for a lot of people, their brain is like that. One idea gets in and then they never allow their brain to be fertilized by other ideas. I think it's really important to acknowledge that you're biased and to try and expose yourself to other people and other ideas. If people read this book and they're more skeptical at the end, we've done our job well, haven't we? And I think that's actually a really great note to end on. I do think that if people draw one lesson from this book, it's that everyone should have humility, not just people who write books, but people who read them too. And yeah, and to be as open-minded as possible. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much, guys. And um, I'm going to psychologically manipulate listeners now to uh, say, if you've enjoyed it too, please do subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review and sign up for the CapEx email. And of course, uh, if you play the podcast backwards, it just tells you to buy Free Your Mind, uh, the new world of manipulation and how to resist it over and over again. So thanks very much. (laughs) 